Many Christians go their entire lives without noticing the most urgent needs around the world, or even those right around them. They are unaware that multiplied millions, even billions among the nations, still have no access to the gospel. They are also unaware that many of these same people, the unreached, have extreme physical needs. In this message from Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, David Platt challenges us to consider how God may be using the story of a forgiven and healed paralytic to direct our lives to people and places that desperately need gospel access. Is God leading you to go? The faith that changed the life of the paralytic and his four friends in Mark chapter 2 is a faith that ought to characterize followers of Christ today. This is the Radical with David Platt podcast. Here is David with a message titled, Faith That Changes Lives in a World of Urgent Need. We call these Acts 13 days in our church family. And I'll put that passage up here on the screen just to remind us why. So Acts chapter 13, verse 1, tells us about the church at Antioch. It says, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So let's make sure we see what just happened. As the church was worshiping and fasting and praying, so we set aside this last Friday for many to fast, gather together Friday night, late into the night to pray, and here we are worshiping together today. While this was happening, the Holy Spirit spoke and said, Barnabas and Saul, I'm setting you apart for this particular work. And the work was to take the gospel where it had not yet gone. So I'll put a map up here on the screen that I've shown before that represents the places where the gospel had gone by Acts chapter 13. And it's really hard to even tell on this map. I'll try to circle it a little bit. But if you look right around Rome, there's a little bit of yellow. And right around Jerusalem where the gospel started, there's a little bit of yellow. And a little bit around Antioch, there's like a tiny bit of yellow. You can barely see it on the map. But those were regions that were known to contain Christians in Acts chapter 13. There's a few Christians in Rome, a few Christians in Antioch, and then some starting to spread out from Jerusalem. What happens at Antioch is God says, Saul and Barnabas, I'm calling you to take the gospel into these places where the gospel has not yet gone. Now, all that then leads to a more contemporary map that I've also shown before, a map of the world today. And if you remember, on this map, there's so green, yellow, and red. The green represents regions in the world where the gospel has gone, where disciples have been made, and disciples of Jesus and churches exist that are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. Obviously, it does not mean that everybody in the green areas of this map is a Christian. But it does mean that the gospel has gone to those places. The yellow areas on this map represent either a more formative or nominal church, which basically means either the church is in its infancy there and it's just growing 
and, but it's still not to a, a strength where it's able to really spread the gospel throughout that area. Or maybe the gospel used to be there and the church has weakened. Think about different places in Europe, for example, where the gospel a century ago was being proclaimed and, and now many church buildings where the gospel is not being proclaimed. So that's yellow. So there's less access to the gospel among the yellow. And then the red on this map represents areas that are classified as unreached by the gospel. And they comprise about 3 billion people, about 40% of the world's population in approximately 7,000 distinct people groups. They are unreached by the gospel. Here's what that means. It doesn't just mean lost. So people are just as lost or separated from God by their sin in Washington, D.C. as they are in Yemen just as lost, separated from God and sin. The difference is there are churches and Christians over here in Metro Washington, D.C. They're proclaiming the gospel. Thousands of them in this church alone and many other churches around our city. In Yemen, there are very few followers of Jesus and very few churches. Some of the places here in the red have zero known Christians or churches among them. Which means that, so practically, if you live in one of those red areas, the likelihood is you will be born, you'll live, and you'll die, and you will never even hear the good news about who Jesus is and how Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose from the grave so that anyone who trusts in him as Savior and Lord will be forgiven of their sins and restored to eternal life with God. You'll never hear that gospel, that good news. And the Bible's clear that if you never hear this gospel, then you can't believe it. And you can't be saved from your sins. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, which means that if unreached people never hear the gospel, when they die, they will experience eternity in hell. Now, some of you might immediately think, surely God wouldn't let them go to hell when they've never heard the gospel, which is why we've walked through that question before in the Bible. We don't have time to go into all of that today, but if that's even a question in your mind, just search what happens to people who never hear the gospel and then put my name in and you'll find plenty on that topic on how the Bible is crystal clear that people cannot be saved from their sins by Jesus if they don't believe in Jesus, and they can't believe in Jesus if they don't hear about Jesus. And I know that's difficult to even stomach, but as followers of Jesus, we can either paralyze ourselves with questions, or we can open our eyes and take God at his word and put into practice what he has clearly told us to do. We are talking about billions of people and thousands of people groups who need to hear the gospel, and Jesus has made it clear what we are to do. We say it to one another at the end of every one of our worship gatherings, to go and make disciples where? Of all the nations. Jesus has told us, crystal clear, make this gospel known among all the people groups. He has called us as his church to pray toward that end, to give toward that end. And for some of us, to go to some of these places. 
Think about it. If there are thousands of people in our church family here and three billion unreached people in the world there, surely God is saying to some of us, maybe many of us here, I am setting you apart to go and take the gospel there where people haven't even heard it, which is why we set aside a Sunday or two a year to fast and pray and worship and ask God, what students, young adults, singles, couples, families, senior adults are you calling to move to these places? And I say, even, even students, let's say children who are in this gathering right now, like listen closely. And obviously I'm not assuming that tomorrow a 10-year-old is going to get on a plane to go to Yemen. But I've met many people working around the world who were in a worship gathering when they were 10 years old. And God spoke to them in a way that changed the trajectory of their life. I've asked God to do that in lives from the youngest to the oldest in this room. But here's the problem. I think there's a misconception among many of you that you could never do this. That's just for a, a certain unusual type of person, not just a normal person like you. And I want you to know that kind of thinking is not from God. That is from the adversary, and it's not true. Let me illustrate. I want to introduce you to one of our pastors and his wife. So this is Chris and Anna. Would you welcome them as they come out here? Chris and Anna here at our Tyson's location. So uh, I want to introduce them to you, and I mean this in the best way possible, as some of the most normal people I know. (laughs) Not unusual. I think that's a compliment, but I, so just normal people who God called to go and serve for many years in a red part of that map. And I want you to hear just a little bit of their story in a way that I hope you can identify with in some ways. So let's start by just asking you guys, what were you doing before you moved to the red part of the unreached in the world? So in college, I was a, a business major, and after college, Ann and I got married, and we moved back to my hometown, and I was teaching business at a middle school and coaching football and basketball. We had just bought our first house, and, uh, and so life was really good. I was living by my family, uh, enjoying marriage, and pursuing a coaching career. Anna? And I studied political science in school, and sanctity of life was truly my passion. But when we moved to Texas, um, the Lord just led me to teach children and got to do that. And shortly after, I was diagnosed with a disease and had surgeries following. And so um, the Lord just led us on a journey for me of healing and just a journey of infertility. And um, just use that time to really deepen our faith, our marriage, and prepare our hearts um, for things that were ahead. So normal people with normal struggles. I, I, I should add, there's one thing a little abnormal about Chris. So uh, Chris was a college football quarterback. So not everybody can do that. Like I, I remember 
when they first moved here and they were over at our house and we were throwing football in the back. And I, I play football with my kids in the back, throw the ball to them. They've never had a ball thrown to them in the way Chris threw the ball. Like my, I was like, son, I'm sorry. I've not prepared you. Cause it was just like, I'm just, I'm giving it all I got. And it's like, boo, and it's like a duck uh, kind of. And then Chris gets there, it's like, here you go. And just fires it at him. It's like, cool. So anyway, a little abnormal, but for the most part, normal people with normal struggles in life and on a particular career path. But years before, when, before you guys even met and got married, you heard about the unreached and, and, and yet you were still on these different career paths until something happened. Tell us about that. Yeah, so Ann and I were able to do some short-term trips and really kind of thought that's what we would do. On my summer breaks, we'd go on short-term trips. I uh, really enjoyed that. Um, but then in 2004, the tsunami hit and over 250,000 people died instantly. And most of those without ever hearing the name of Jesus or, or hearing the gospel message. And that really just broke our heart and led us to pray, God, what do you want us to do with our life? And then a few months later, during a worship service, the Lord clearly spoke to my heart that he wanted us to move overseas and serve him. And I was a little bit nervous and I didn't know what to think about that. And after the service, Anna asked me, did God speak to you at all? I was like, yeah, he said we're supposed to move overseas and serve him. She's like, that's the same thing he spoke to me. I pray that he would confirm it in you. And so we didn't, I didn't have any seminary training, so we started working with our church to help kind of discern where the Lord was leading us and prepare us and, and um, uh, know how to be, do work overseas. Uh, but we knew the Lord had put in our heart Isaiah 9 2 that those living in darkness have seen a great light. And that was what He was calling us to do is go be that light, to shine the light of Jesus and share that gospel message. That's, that's the moment that we were praying. God, who, who are you saying that to among us today? And so you guys went and you moved to a red area of that map. What did you guys do when you got there? Yeah, so we didn't speak the language, so we went full-time in the language learning so that we could communicate with the people and build relationships and ultimately share the gospel. And then after a couple of years of that, I used my business degree and opened up a consulting business, and that gave us a lot of good uh, relationships in the community that we could build. And then um, actually, I was able to coach football again, so amazingly, the people liked American football. So I was able to use that to build relationships, share the good news, and then just as a family, we uh, wanted to make disciples in our neighborhood, reaching out to local residents restaurants, uh, just doing things as a family. And we were able to see uh, churches grow in health and then multiplication, and then also see them have the vision to go to the unreached people. Like, are you following this? Normal people doing normal things. Like doing business somewhere else, coaching football somewhere else. Now, wait a second. I, th there's so many things we could dive into here, but I think I've got it figured out. Obviously, this was easy for you guys because you didn't have kids, so it just made it easier. Is that true? Right. It was in the beginning, no. Um, we didn't have any children when we went overseas, um, but we now have six. Um, we were, had, were walked the journey of infertility for six years, and the Lord added to our family five children in two years and a month. <laughs> we are so grateful for that. 
praise the Lord from whom all blessings flow, truly. Um, and then three years later, um, he blessed us with our youngest daughter. So we um, were a family of eight. And yes, we just got to serve the Lord. We are broken and desperate people in need of Christ every day. And he's worked in our family in just marvelous ways. And we just praise him. I'm so thankful for the ways that our children just got to minister alongside of us. We always tried to just let them do it with us in many ways. Um, I think of the beggar, the paralyzed beggar that just was laying on the dust in the ground that I met one day and said, will you come to our house for dinner? And he came a few days later and our kids were just so joyful and served him and he became our friend. And then I think of the friends that had never celebrated their birthday before, that were now our sisters and brothers, and they got to celebrate for the first time in our home. And the Lord just, we saw people come to faith by his just wonderful works and we got to see them grow in faith and it's truly such a privilege. I, I can't imagine our life any other way. It was truly amazing and I praise the Lord for just the ability to go to the nations. There's so much, yeah. There's so much I'd love to dive into with Chris and Anna, but the primary reason I wanted you to hear from them today is to see like God is calling football coaches and business leaders and teachers and moms and dads and all kinds of normal people, like three billion people in the world won't be reached by the gospel when a couple of unusual people decide to do something about it. Three billion people in the world will be reached with the gospel when a whole host of normal people in the church filled with the supernatural spirit of God decide to follow his lead to take the greatest news in the world to those who've never heard it. And I guarantee you, you can hear it in their voices. Chris and Anna don't regret for a second following the spirit's leadership in that moment on that day. And so that's why we've come to this day. Just in case it was... Uh, not clear before now, this is not just a religious perfunctory service we're going through right now. We're in a meeting with God and we are asking him to call out some of us in the next few minutes to go. Or maybe, maybe even just like Chris and Anna having thought about this before to bring that to fruition on this day. And so I wanna lead us to pray and in just a moment for us all together to say, and this is the prayer my family and I were praying this morning before we came in, we're gonna pray it together. God, I will do whatever you call me to do to spread the gospel to the unreached. And we're just gonna see what he says. And don't be afraid to pray that prayer. I mentioned this last week. You don't ever have to be afraid about following the lordship of Jesus in your life. That's the best place for you to be. Be afraid of, of making your own plans for your life. Be very afraid of that. So can we just bow our heads before God right now? All across this room and all the locations where we're gathered online. And I'm just going to say this prayer out loud, a phrase at a time. And I want to invite you to repeat after me. For us corporately to say this out loud to God together. Would you just repeat after me and say, God, I will do 
whatever you call me to do. To spread the gospel among the unreached. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Will you thank Chris and Anna with me? All right. So now let's hear from God in his word, Mark chapter 2, which just so happens to be the next story in our journey through the book of Mark, and it is a great story. Picture it. When Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. When they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. What a story. Like, picture it. This scene, a crowd crammed into this home. Change it up. Crammed into this home, many gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door. It's packed in, overflowing out the door. Inside, Jesus is preaching to eager listeners and some scribes who are trying to figure out who this disease-healing, demon-delivering teacher is. And suddenly, four men show up with a paralyzed friend on a mat. They want to get in the house, but no one will let them in. Just imagine, if people at the door looking back, they make eye contact with this man on the mat, his friends around him, and they turn back around without budging. And when pushing and prodding don't work, the friends get resourceful. Just imagine the conversation as the first guy says, why don't we climb up on the roof? To which the second guy says, a lot of good that'll do, genius. Jesus is inside, not outside. To which the first guy replies, yeah, I know that, bro. We'll just take the roof off. <laughs> to which the third guy says, you can't just take the roof off. The first guy says, why not? They look at each other. And finally, the fourth guy chimes in. I don't think we have a better option. We want to get our friend to Jesus. If that's the only way, let's do it. So they climb up on the roof. A common place in a home in that day to sit or stand or lie down. 
sleep on a cool night, almost like we might picture a deck today. It's sturdy enough to walk on. So imagine you're inside. You hear footsteps above as you're listening to Jesus in front of you. And all of a sudden, you hear an odd noise and dirt starts to fall on your head. First a little bit, then it's a lot. And it's not just falling on you, it's falling on people around you. Jesus himself is dodging it. The roof is coming down. You can only imagine the owner of the house screaming, what are you guys doing to my roof? We don't, we don't know for sure who, whose house this was. I'm pretty sure that if it was Peter's mother-in-law, she was about to have another headache that she would need to be healed of. <laughs> when suddenly the sun starts to peek through. By now, Jesus, despite his authoritative teaching, has lost the crowd's attention. More dirt falls, more tiles are removed until a massive hole is formed. Like Mark's description in the original language here suggests a major demolition job. The text literally says they unroofed the roof. And once the hole was made, there was a long pause as everyone waited for what was going to happen next. And that's when a mat, likely tied with ropes at its corners, is slowly lowered down. And on it lies a paralyzed man now placed in front of Jesus' feet. And no one says a word, inside or outside. Did you notice? Mark doesn't record a single word spoken by those friends. I can just imagine Jesus looking down at the man, then up at his friends. What, what, what look do you imagine on their faces? Were they nervous, anxious? Smiling, we can assume they were sweating as they catch their breath and wait to see what is Jesus going to do. We don't know exactly what the friends looked like, but we do know that whatever Jesus saw was the face of faith. And he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Which is pretty odd when you think about it. Because the man didn't even ask for that. This is where we realize we don't have all the details. We don't know for sure if anyone else said anything. We do know that it was common belief in that day that physical suffering was attributed to personal sin. We don't know whether this, is, this man's paralysis was tied to specific sin in his life or if it was something that he was born with. All we know is Jesus makes a pronouncement that shocks the crowds and specifically these religious leaders. This man has sinned, and Jesus has authority to forgive them, which leads those scribes to wonder in their hearts, like the penalty for blaspheming is death, and this teacher deserves it. He's claiming to be God. While the text doesn't say they said that out loud, Jesus saw straight into their hearts, as he does with all of us, and he turns to them and says, why do you question these things in your hearts? And he says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, forgive sins, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, heal paralysis? Which is easier, forgive sins or heal paralysis? And after a pause, he says, I want you to know I have authority 
to forgive sins. And then he turns to the paralytic and says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And picture it to the amazement of the crowd crammed into that home and to the disgust of scribes sitting on the floor and to the delight of four friends peering down through an unroofed roof, the man stood. He stood and immediately picked up his bed and he ran out of the room. The crowds moved for him this time. And you can imagine those friends running down off the roof, jumping up and down with their friend as they shouted and raced. They raced home with a demolished house in their wake full of people who for the first time now speak in the story and say, we never saw anything like this. Isn't that a great story? So what is God? Yes, give... This word, the word of God is so good. So what is God saying to us through this Story in this meeting right now is we're saying, God, who are you calling us to go? Who are you calling among us to go? What is God saying to us? Here's how I would summarize God's word to us in this text on this day in a world of three billion unreached people. One, we must see the needs among the unreached. See needs. Here are crowds in Mark 2 flocking to see Jesus, yet totally ignoring a paralytic man in need of Jesus until four guys see him on the road and stop. They saw him. I am convinced that one of the primary reasons more Christians are not praying and giving and going to the unreached is because we're not even opening our eyes to the reality of the unreached. We don't even see them. So many Christians, and some of you are there, can spend years in church and never even hear about unreached people in the world. Or maybe just hear and think about them every once in a while, but then go on with business as usual. God, open our eyes to see, first and foremost, urgent spiritual needs, which are ultimate and by ultimate here, in Mark 2, pointing to the reality that this man's ultimate need was not to stand on his feet, but to be forgiven of his sin. And that is the ultimate need of every single person in the world. Every single person in this gathering, more than anything else, we need to be forgiven of our sin and reconciled to God. And this is the gospel. The good news is that God has made a way for us to be forgiven of all our sin, reconciled to him for eternal life through faith in Jesus, what he did on the cross, his resurrection from the grave. Which is why we have been commanded to proclaim this gospel in a world of spiritual need, starting right around us. Yes, there are people in this spiritual need to be forgiven of sin that we work with and live among Sit at restaurants next to. So yes, starting right here, but not stopping here. There are three billion people in the world who don't even have access to this gospel, don't have someone near them who can share this gospel with, and at some point, somebody has to go to them. Knowing that if someone doesn't go to them, they cannot be saved from their sin. 
Somebody has to go and tell them. If no one goes and tells them, they will spend eternity separated from him. Do we feel what's at stake here? Three billion people. Do we see the need? The ultimate urgent spiritual need. Like we're prone to think about needs in the world first and foremost as physical needs. The impoverished or the starving. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Obviously that's part of the story here in Mark chapter 2. But don't miss the ultimate point. Yes, we have been commanded to show God's love in a world of earthly suffering. And ultimately we have been commanded to proclaim God's gospel to keep people from eternal suffering. Keep people from hell. See what's at stake in what we're talking about today. God, open our eyes to billions of people that no one is going to right now to see urgent spiritual need and then, yes, to see urgent physical needs which are evident. Just like the man here in Mark chapter 2 lying on the mat who cannot walk Yes, we have been commanded to display Jesus' love in a world of urgent physical need. Yes, all throughout the Bible, we've been commanded to care for people amidst earthly suffering. If we don't, James 2, we don't actually have faith. What good is it, my brothers, if man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. One of you says to him, go, I wish you well. Keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs. What good is that? In the same way, faith, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. If we turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to people in urgent need around us, our faith is worthless. It's in vain. It's, it's as good as dead. So this is why in our partnership with Radical, we created a tool that is called Stratus that I've shared with you before. Its aim is to open the eyes of the church to urgent spiritual and physical need among the nations. Stratus.earth, where you can see a glimpse of the world. It takes data from all kinds of different places to open our eyes to spiritual and physical needs in the world and where they collide. The more dark red on this map is where you see a deeper collision of urgent spiritual and physical need without the gospel and with a lot of physical suffering. Places like Afghanistan, which has obviously been a lot in the news recently, or maybe we focused in on Yemen for a minute. And this whole tool is intended to help us see, to sit down and look with your family, with your kids, with your church group, just in your life, in your prayer life, learn about how to pray for Yemen. Learn about all the needs for the gospel in Yemen, to pull up videos that help you pray for Yemen. In fact, let's, let's do that now. Let's just pause and let's watch this video that leads us to pray for Yemen. And as we do, may God open our eyes and the eyes of our hearts to urgent spiritual and physical need in the world. Watch this with me. Heavenly Father, I come to your throne of mercy. 
I thank you that you did on the cross for us. I thank you for your love and forgiveness to your people. I thank you for caring for us. Thank you for hearing our prayers. And I know that you listen to us and answer us. Oh God, I pray for your people and church in Yemen. I pray for your protection and help for the north and south, east and west. I pray that you fill Yemen with your Holy Spirit and take control of it. I pray for peace which is beyond all understanding. I pray that you open the eyes of the people to your salvation, to know you and find your love as well as your forgiveness. I pray that you display and reveal yourself to them. Show them you are a God of peace and not God of bloodshed. I pray that the church will grow more and more. I pray for financial help for the people, for an end in the world, for an end to disease such as dengue fever and bilharzia, and for relief from hunger. I pray for love among the people, where the division. I ask you for your peace to dwell in the midst of them. I pray that their spirits would receive your love and salvation. Because I know that you are the true God who did on the cross to save all people from sin. I pray that you bring people back, bring them back to know your power and your love. I pray that my people will be united and that you will stop the bloodshed. Jesus, spread your peace in the country. Your sheep are lost. Oh God, I pray you fix the economy of the country and take away hunger as well as suffering that is happening. Stop the obvious of people. I pray for the leaders, God, that you take their hands. I pray that you touch their hearts and fill them with your mercy and wisdom to accomplish your will. You say, ask and you will receive. So we ask Jesus for the sake of these people, destroy all the enemies, plans, and kingdom of Satan, who is trying to send people away from you. I pray for your children, for special protection from islands and war. I pray that you would bring them back to the school and allow them to grow in your grace and love. I also pray for women, the mothers who have lost their sons in the war, and the women who have lost their husband, that you would be with them and encourage them. Special help and special blessing from you. Spirit your peace, your wisdom to people. Revile yourself to them. Revile that you are the one true God who will save his people. Oh God, save the people. Oh God, be with them. Help them as you have done for your people throughout the history. Work miracles so that all Yemenis will rise and worship you. Help them to know that there is a Father that loves and cares about them. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I was on the phone Thursday with a good friend who for many years has been working to get the gospel to Yemenis. And he was telling me about the brother who led that prayer, voiced that prayer, and all the cost he's experiencing for following Jesus. You might think, well, okay, so there are Christians there. There's a church there. Yes. There's 30 million people in Yemen. We don't know for sure exactly how many Christians 
But it's very likely that there are more Christians in McLean Bible Church than in all of Yemen put together. That's what I mean by surely God is calling somebody to go to the unreached. Maybe many bodies to go. It starts with our willingness to open our eyes and not turn away and just go back to business as usual. We must see the needs among the unreached. At the same time, we must realize the challenges to reaching the unreached. Much like we see in Mark chapter 2, but on a much grander scale. These men carrying this paralytic on a mat to get to this house realizing it's not going to be easy to get this man to Jesus. And the same exact thing is true for all the red areas on that map. We've said before that unreached people are unreached for a reason. They're hard to reach. They're difficult to reach. In some cases, dangerous to reach. We've said before, all the easy ones are taken. You just think about all the challenges to reaching the red areas of that map, natural challenges, think geographic challenges. It's hard to get the gospel to remote villages in the Amazon or deep in the rugged terrain of Afghanistan. Think political challenges, like we see all throughout the Bible, kings who set themselves up against God, leaders who oppose and attack the people of God, governments like we see in Revelation that work against the spread of the gospel. Think conflicts and wars and corruption. All these things affect the spread of the gospel among the nations. Then think developmental challenges, economic instability, illiteracy, lack of access to clean water or medicine. All of these factors affecting reaching the nations with the gospel. Social challenges, slavery, trafficking, violence, crime, ethnic tension, refugee relocation, All these present unique challenges to the spread of the gospel. Think linguistic challenges you heard Chris and Anna talk about, learning language. There's over 7,000 languages spoken around the world today. Approximately half of them still have little or no scripture. At some point, that challenge is going to have to be overcome in order to reach the nations with the gospel. And on top of all these challenges, you have persecution in unreached places. Many of these are places in the world that will not welcome missionaries or Christians or anyone speaking about Christ. But in all of this, we shouldn't be surprised. Some of you might look at this list and be like, okay, you've sufficiently talked me out of it. If that's you, I would just ask you the follow-up question, what kind of Christianity have you bought into? Who told you that following Jesus would lead to greater comfort and ease in this world? Because that didn't come from this book. That came from a very skewed version of this book. It's being sold all across our culture. You look at the story of this book, you see a people who are facing, read the book of Acts. Who was that easy for? All these challenges were there. And this is our story, church. I leave behind 
a false, superficial picture of Christianity. Embrace a biblical picture of Christianity that says we're the church of Jesus Christ. We're part of a story that does not shrink back from challenges in order to spread the gospel in the world. No, we see challenges as opportunities for our God to show his power and his glory in ways far beyond what we could ever do as we have our lives fixed on a totally different country and world. That's our story. Which, which leads, you're like, do I clap to this? this? This is what it means to follow Jesus. He didn't say if they persecute you. He said when they persecute you. He didn't say if you experience challenges. He said when you experience challenges. Which leads to the third and final way. I would summarize God's word to us in this text today. We must see the needs among the unreached. Realize the challenges to reaching the unreached, and we must pray, give, send, and go with resolve to meet needs and overcome challenges among the unreached with faith. That is, so let me pause there because every word there counts. There's a lot there. These first two things, let's be clear, are for all of us. We must all pray, right, for the spread of the gospel of the nations. Is this evident in your prayer life? Are you praying every day? for the spread of the gospel to people who've never heard it. Do you, do you pray like you're longing for that because the spirit of God in you longs for that. So use Stratostat Earth. Use Unreached the Day from Joshua Project. In your life, as a couple, in your family, gather together, look at these unreached people groups, pray for the spread of the gospel to them. We must all pray and we must all give. Like, we live in one of the wealthiest places in the world. And God has given us wealth for a reason, for the spread of his worship in the world, not for the indulging of more and more and more and more stuff in it that won't last. So how are we going to use the resources God has given us for the spread of his gospel among people who've never heard it? And we're going to invest ourselves there. We all must pray. We all must give. And then these second two are likely an either or at any given point in our lives based on Acts 13. Think about it. Everybody in the church at Antioch was either a sender or a goer. So either they were going like Paul and Barnabas or they were playing a part in sending them out from the church at Antioch and supporting them as they went. And it's not that one is more important than the other. One's a super Christian. The others are kind of lesser Christians. No. It's not about whether you're the goer or the sender. It's about whether you're obeying the Spirit of God. He's calling all of us to pray, give, and at any given point, either be a sender or a goer. God is calling us to do all of that with resolve. Think Mark 2. These men were resolved to do whatever it took to meet this man's need and overcome challenges with faith. And I want you to think with me about these guys' faith and to see in their faith a picture of the kind of faith we need. We need faith that is confident. These four guys in Mark 2 knew Jesus could help their friend. They believed that they could just get their friend in front of Jesus, something amazing would happen. The question is, do we believe that? 
Do we believe if we can just get the gospel to these peoples and people groups and places that something amazing will happen? Do we believe that? If we believe that, then we'll pray and give and send and go to get them the gospel because we believe he can change lives and he can change families and he can change communities. God, give us faith that's confident, that's compassionate. Like these friends loved this man. You don't go to measures like this for somebody you don't care for. Imagine this man lying on that mat while crowds of people are running to this home where Jesus was teaching. Praise God for four faithful, compassionate friends who saw this man in need and were not content to wring their hands in pious concern and just keep going. They decided to do something about it. God raised up a compassionate church that sees unreached people and does something about it that doesn't just go back to life as normal, pretending like they don't exist. God, give us faith that's creative. These guys in Mark 2 were scrappy, resourceful, even a bit reckless, weren't they? No challenge was gonna stop them. No crowd, no roof. They unroofed a roof to get their friend to Jesus. God, give us creative, resourceful, scrappy, even reckless faith that says we're gonna overcome challenges with faith that's creative and contagious. I think about this. Like Mark tells us very little about this man lying on the mat. But when I try to imagine myself on that mat, I'm laying there and word gets around that Jesus is teaching in the house up the way. Everybody starts running and they're ignoring me. And I'm stuck by myself until four friends come over and say, we're gonna take you to Jesus because he can help you. I think their faith would probably start to encourage my own. And maybe Jesus can help me. Maybe he will. But then when I'm lying on that mat outside the house, the crowds are looking at me, but then they won't let me in. I think I'd probably start to get discouraged. Like I've seen that look too many times. When I look over at my friends talking, pointing up at the roof and hatching a plan, they come back and tell me their crazy idea. I think my faith would probably be encouraged. When I'm lying there on the roof, watching them dig a hole in it, strap ropes to my mat and lower me down, I'm guessing I'm looking up in my friend's eyes, seeing their determination and their faith is bolstering my own with hopeful anticipation until the moment my mat settles on that floor and I look up at the face of Jesus with the expectant faces of my friends in the background, I think my heart would be filled with faith in that moment. That's what I mean by contagious faith. Their faith affected Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he did this. Their faith affected this man in need. God give us contagious faith that believes Jesus is what the nations need. He is who the nations need. God, may it be evident to the peoples of the world that McLean Bible Church believes that Jesus is so good and so great and so glorious that we'll give our lives so you can know him. Contagious faith that's costly. Meaning it wasn't easy for these guys to do what they did, but they were willing to do whatever it took for this man to encounter Jesus. And that is the question for you and me today. Are we willing to do whatever it takes so that unreached people can encounter Jesus? Are are we going to live, all of us, whether we Send or go with confident, compassionate, creative, contagious, costly faith like this. 
praying and giving and then sending. And who is God calling among us to go? Who's God calling to leave your job here for the spread of the gospel among the unreached? Who's God calling to leverage your job for the spread of the gospel among the unreached? So many in our church family have employment where you can take a position overseas. On Friday night in our prayer gathering, we heard from two people who've done that over the last couple of months who've intentionally pursued positions in their work among unreached people and are now working there instead of here for the spread of the gospel among those who've never heard it. And not just in government or multinational companies. I think about teachers, engineers, nurses, all kinds of medical professionals, football coaches, so many avenues. And students, why not study overseas among unreached people? Or before you go to college or during your time in college or before you graduate college to work for a year or two among the unreached. I saw a video this last week of a high school senior girl in the Mormon church reading off her letter that she'd received in the mail of where she was going to go on mission for a year. She read it like shaking with tears in her eyes and a smile on her face and a whole crowd of people had gathered at her house. She read the letter and when she got to where she was going, they all applauded her. They were cheering, jumping up and down. She was going out like, where are the parents who are leading our children to do that? Where are the parents? Where is the church cheering on students who are committing a year or more of their lives to spread the gospel among people who've never heard it? If Mormon families are training sons and daughters to spend a year somewhere else in the world spreading a false message, then why are we not training our children to do that with the true gospel? Why are we not instilling that dream in them? Children, teenagers who are listening right now, dream about getting the gospel to people who've never heard it. Don't dream about being the king and the greatest in the sport. Dream about making the king of kings known among people who've never heard his name. And retirees, it's not just for younger people. Why not look for opportunities to use retirement time and money? for the spread of the gospel among those who've never heard it. God, give us as a church Mark II kind of faith. So here's what I want to do. I want to lead us before God in prayer. This picture of the unreached before us, the challenge it's going to take to get the gospel to them and to ask him, God, what are you calling us to do? How are you calling us to pray and give? And then are you calling me to sin or are you calling me to go? So will you bow your heads with me? I just want to lead us. This room, all our locations, those who are listening, watching online, before God. Oh God, we have gathered together today. Many have fasted and prayed this week, asking you to send out more of us for the spread of your love where Jesus is not now known. We know you're calling all of us to pray and to give for this purpose. And then either to send or to go for this purpose. So we ask you in this holy moment, 
who among us, Spirit of God, are you calling to go? On more than just a mission trip, who are you calling to go for months or years to the unreached? We trust that you've been speaking to our hearts. And we want to pause now in silence and just ask for your Holy Spirit to speak, to clarify, to confirm in our hearts what you are saying to us now. Help us to listen. Let me pray. Oh God, you tell us in Matthew 9, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. We are asking you, oh God, send out many from among us, we pray, for the spread of the gospel to people who have never heard it. God, we pray that in the days, months, years to come, there would be people and people groups reached with the gospel for the first time because of what you have done by your spirit in this gathering today. May the fruit, just like we've read in Bible reading this week in 1 Thessalonians, may the fruit of your grace in this church, in MBC, in our church family, may the fruit of your grace here resound to your glory around the world. We pray for this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. That's it for today's episode. I'm your host, Stacey Martin. For additional articles, podcasts, events, and more, visit Radical.net or follow us on Facebook and Instagram. 